Amazingly, you guys are back after last week. I have to say, one of the great joys of being here is working through big topics, controversial topics. And you know, the only feedback I had through the week was conversations with people about how can I make application of this? Help me understand this better. It wasn't pushback. There was no rebellious spirit. There was no compromise with the spirit of the age. And so I have to say thank you to all of you for making this a joy. Because honestly, I'll I'll admit, I don't actually like preaching like this very much. Uh, I far prefer just sequential exposition because the text does all the work. This is considerably more work to give a survey of scripture, but I think it's worth it. And you have shown with your actions that it is worth it. And for those who were not able to make it to Sunday school, first off, what's wrong with you people? (laughs) Second, be here. And third, it is recorded and it does go up on the website and on Sermon Audio. We had a good discussion this morning about fleshing some of this out. You're going to notice this morning in the sermon, I'm going to do what looks like a dodge on 1 Corinthians 10 and about women's head covering. I'm not dodging it, there's just not time to say everything about everything in every sermon, so you can go listen to that, because that question came up. But I do want to encourage you, again, we did a thought experiment in Sunday school, and I'm going to do it again. If you were or weren't here, I want us to be self-conscious when we think about our gut answers to questions dealing with gender and sexuality. All of us have answers just stored up inside of us, or thoughts, or ideas, just stored up inside of us that just reflexively come out without any thought. And I want to challenge us in this sermon series, as we're going through things that are very countercultural. think that through. How did those ideas that seem obvious to you get there? How did they get there? Are the things that you think are obvious, are they actually obvious from a biblical conception? I started reading a, a, a piece last week called Feminism's Ruined Lives by Mallory Millett, who is uh, the sister of the famed 1970s feminist Kate Millett. And I'm actually going to pick that article up right where we left off last week. So this is from Front Page Magazine. It's a little booklet that Mallory Millett wrote called Feminism's Ruined Lives. How could 12 American women who were the most respectable types imaginable Clean and privileged graduates of esteemed institutions. Columbia, Radcliffe, Smith, Wellesley, Vassar. The uncle of one was Secretary of War under Franklin D. Roosevelt. How could they plot such a thing? Most had advanced degrees and appeared cogent, bright, reasonable, and good. How did these people rationally believe that they could succeed with such a vicious grandiosity? And why? I dismissed it as academic lounge aircastle building. I continued with my own life in New York while my sister became famous publishing her books. Featuring on the cover of Time magazine, Time called her the Karl Marx of the women's movement. This was because her book laid out a course in Marxism 101 for women. Her thesis, and I'm going to introduce some terms here, in Marxist speak, the bourgeoisie are the upper class in society. The people who own all the property and have all the stuff and they are the enemy. You have to hate them in Marxist philosophical thought. And the proletariat are the working class stiffs, the people who should do the hating, okay? The people who need to destroy uh, the bourgeoisie. So background on these words. They called her the Karl Marx of the women's movement. This was because her book laid out a course in Marxism 101 for women. Her thesis, the family is a den of slavery with the man as the bourgeoisie and the woman and children as the proletariat. The only hope for women's liberation was this new women's movement. Her books captivated the academic classes, and soon women's studies courses were installed in colleges in a steady wave across the nation with Kate Millett books required reading. Imagine this. A girl of 17 or 18 at the kitchen table with mom studying the syllabus for her first year of college, and there's a class called women's studies. Hmm, this could be interesting, says mom. Maybe you could get something out of this. It seems innocuous to her. How could she suspect this is a class in which her innocent daughter will be taught that her father is a villain? Her mother is a fool who allowed a man to enslave her into a barbaric practice like monogamy and family life and motherhood, which is a total waste of her talent. 
She mustn't follow in her mother's footsteps. That would be listening, or that would be submitting to life as a mindless drone for some domineering man, the oppressor, who has mesmerized her with tricks like romantic love. Never be lured into this chicanery, she will be taught. Although men are, and I'm quoting here, I'll soften it, although men are no darn good, she should use them for her own orgasmic gratification. Sleep with as many men as possible in order to keep herself unattached and free. There's hardly a 17-year-old girl without a grudge from high school against some Jimmy or Jason who broke her heart. Boys are learning too, and they can be careless during high school. That torment of courting dances for both sexes. By the time women's studies professors finish with your daughter, she will be a shell of the innocent girl you knew, who's soon convinced that although she should be flopping down with every boy she fancies, she should not by any means get pregnant. And so, as a practitioner of promiscuity, she becomes a wizard of prevention techniques, especially abortion. The goal of women's liberation is to wear each female down to losing all empathy for boys, men, or babies. The tenderest aspects of her soul are roughened into a pile of rock cynicism, where she will think nothing of murdering her baby in the warm, protective nest of her little girl womb. She will be taught that she, in order to free herself, must become an outlaw. This is the only reasonable because all Western law since the Magna Carta and even before is a concoction of evil white men whose true purpose is to press women into slavery. Be an outlaw, rebel, be defiant. All women are prostitutes, she will be told. You're either really smart and use sex by being promiscuous for your own pleasures and development as a full free human being, just like men, or you can be a professional prostitute, a viable business for women, which is empowering. Or you can be stupid like your mother and prostitute yourself to one man exclusively, whereby you fall under the heavy thumb of the oppressor. All wives are just one-man whores. She is to be heartless in this. No sentimental stuff about courting. No empathy for boy or baby. She has to live a life and no one is to get in her way. And if the boy or man doesn't get it, then no sex for him. Making love becomes having sex. And I'm not having sex with any jerk who doesn't believe I can kill his son or daughter at my whim. He has no say in it because it's my body, which is strange logic. For who has ever heard of a baby with two heads, two hearts, four arms, and four feet? There's no end to the absurdities your young girl will be convinced to swallow. I plan to leap from guy to guy as much as I please, and no one can stop me because I'm liberated. In other words, these people will turn your daughter into a slut with my sister's books as an instruction manual. And by the way, slut is a good word. Be proud of it. She'll be telling you, I'm, never, I'm probably never getting married, and if I do, it'll be after I've established my career, which nowadays means never. I'll keep my own name, and I really don't want kids. They're such a bother and only get in the way, they'll tell her. Don't let any guy degrade you by allowing him to open doors for you. To be called a lady is an insult. Chivalry is a means of ownership. I've known women who fell for this creed in their youth, who now, in their 50s and 60s, cry themselves to sleep decades of countless nights grieving for the children they'll never have and the ones they coldly murdered because they were protecting the empty, loveless futures which they now live with no way of going back. Where are my grandchildren? Where are my children? They cry to me. Your sister's books destroyed my sister's life. I've heard it numerous times. She was happily married with four kids and after she read those books, walked out on a bewildered man and didn't look back. The man fell into despairing rack and ruin. The children were stunted, set off their tracks, deeply harmed, the family profoundly dislocated, as there is no putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. There it is. It's the world we were born into. And I want to contrast that with what God says about this whole arrangement. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2. And we're going to look at 18 through 25. And once you're there, please stand as we read God's word together. These are the inerrant words of God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to a man to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless the reading of his word. So you see the contrasting views of reality here. Where feminism has solitude and empty, meaningless sex, God has designed togetherness and a one flesh union. Where feminism sees man as an enemy, God sees fit to make, him, to make man give of himself to create woman. Where feminism has independent careers and independent lives, even for married couples, God has a man leaving his father and mother so he can establish a new covenant home with his wife. And perhaps most strikingly, where the sexual revolution has turned children into either narcissistic vanity projects or expensive inconveniences, God has designed the Christian home as the rich soil from which the blessing of new life flows and takes its place in helping to cover the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. So because the Bible roots its instruction about gender in creation, it's important for us to start there, which is why we've started there the last two Sundays. And so very often, the argument against the classical Christian view on gender and on sexuality is that uh, what the Bible says is cultural and therefore no longer applicable. But there's two problems with this. Even if, for the sake of argument, that we'd argue uh, that the Bible does, in fact, strictly just describe the culture it's in with no instructions for how we ought to do it in all different cultures, we'd still be assuming this. Gender norms run pretty consistently through all history, even across different cultures. We are the first ones to attempt this violent revolt against reality. Okay? I was going to make a joke last week, but I didn't, so I'll do it now. Um, when talking about Andrew Tate and some of these hucksters and, and, and stuff, uh, young men need to realize that there's more to being a godly man than making, angry, m- than making feminists angry. Okay? There's more to it. Besides, that would be way too easy. <laughs> feminists are always angry. Okay? Why are feminists angry? Why are they known for that? Because they're fighting reality. What we are in is in the middle of a full-tilt revolt against reality, <laughs> against creation. And all societies have found ways, cultural expressions of affirming masculinity and femininity. We are the ones who are in revolt. And if you'd see one guy in the army marching out a step, uh, it would be a bit silly to say, well, the whole army's marching out a step except for that one guy. If you're the outlier, the problem's probably you. Okay, the problem's probably us. So even if the Bible's instructions were cultural, why are we assuming that our culture is superior to all the others? Why would we assume that? Can we learn from other cultures? I tend to think so. How would we find out that we're the wisest and the first enlightened culture to finally get it right in contradiction to everyone who's come before us? So even if that were true, and I don't think it is, that argument falls flat. And the Bible never once bases its argumentation about gender roles on culture, on education, or on societal norms. It bases it always on design. It always goes back to creation to make its case. And since God is the author of gender... He has authority over gender. You see the word uh, author in the word authority? God made this. He gets to have the rules. This is his world, his rules. And creation itself is a supernatural act of God by which he brought everything into being. And he continues to be personally involved in sustaining and governing all affairs today down to the tiniest last providential detail. We're told in Ephesians 5 that men and women are put together in order to give us a scaled-down picture of the cosmic glory of Christ building his church, fighting for his church, protecting his church, and leading his church. And this is another way of saying that gender is symbolic. And again, the fact that something is symbolic doesn't take away from the fact that it's real and objective. It just means that real, objective things mean something. They're not meaningless. They're not just purely the cause of chemistry or biology. They mean something. They're telling a story. It was humid, so I'm not wearing my wedding ring, so maybe this picture will fall flat. But picture my wedding ring. 
is made of gold. It has a pattern on it. It's a certain weight. These are all objective, empirical things you can say with science about my wedding ring. They're all objective reality. But the most important thing about my wedding ring is something you can't see or observe. My marriage. My marriage weighs nothing. It has no color. You can't smell it, but it's real. And I would argue it's more real than my wedding ring. Okay? Because the wedding ring point is a symbol that points to something bigger. And then if you look at our marriage and you say, well, even that is symbolic of something much bigger, which is the cosmic glory of Christ and his church. Your marriage, your gender, your sexuality is symbolic. It's there to tell a story. And because gender is designed by God to tell a story, this means that masculinity and femininity are important wherever they are found. Okay, so when we talk about this stuff, I fear too frequently Christians fall into this trap, which is saying, essentially, feminism has won. We're not going to change that, so let's just kind of make peace with it. So, so feminist or sexual revolution theory, uh, that exists out in the real world. And we just want a couple carve-outs in the family and in the church um, so they can have the real world, and we're just going to say, well, yeah, you know, out there that's all fine, but here in the church we're going to do it differently and, and, and because God's word says so, and it's really, really, really hard to get out of 1 Timothy 2, so we're kind of forced to obey there. That might sound kind of pious, but here's the problem with that. If we're going to say that the, the sexual revolution's claims about all reality are true, but we just have to obey in our families or in the church, we're reduced to saying, yes, the Bible is true, but it's not good and it's not beautiful. Okay? It's limiting the Bible's authority to just inside the church, which is false. Okay? The Bible is God's word and God has authority everywhere. So God's word is authoritative everywhere. And so what the Bible teaches on gender is true everywhere. And it must be not only true, but good and beautiful. And when we make this play that we say, well, the real world, they can have it, and we're just going to obey in our families and in our churches, again, it, then instructions in the Bible about gender, if we live in an otherwise egalitarian world, but in the church and in the home we have to obey God, that starts to seem arbitrary. Like God's just arbitrarily picking spots to make life difficult for us in an otherwise feminist world, and that is false. It's not an otherwise feminist world. This is reality, rock bottom foundational reality from creation on, and everyone is downstream from creation. So we're not assuming an egalitarian world and then using the Bible to explain the exceptions. We're saying this is true. This is true. If you don't like it, too bad. It's like gravity. So the Bible is painting a positive vision of what men are for and what women are for, and this vision applies to all of life. Genesis 3.23, it says, And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So when you hear bone of my bones or flesh of my flesh, this is how the ancients used language to draw attention to something. They didn't have exclamation marks. They couldn't italicize or use underline. Uh, If they wanted to explain something in the superlative, they would just repeat the word. So they didn't have good, better, best. They had, you can have a, a pit, or you can have a pit pit, or you can have a pit pit pit, right? That's really deep. That's really big. That's how the ancients describe it. And that's why when Isaiah talks about God as being holy, 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 that's the ancient way of saying he is the most holy. He is the highest superlative. And Adam is doing the same thing here. Because this masterpiece that he's looking at is built off the original. The woman is the final draft to be handed in after the rough draft has been smoothed out and sanded down. In the creation account, our English translations use both Adam and man interchangeably, and both are correct. Adam was taken out of the ground, and saw that here, and also in Genesis 3.19, Adama, which is the ground. So Adam's literal name would be Earthman. And Adam naming his wife is significant on several levels. First of all, naming is an act of authority. Parents name their children. Elders who plant a church name the church. And husbands name their wives. And this still happens today, at least it should. And we talked this morning, different cultures have different ways of practicing true things. As long as the customs all point to the truth, rather than stripping away at it, there can be more than one valid cultural uh, expression of certain things. So it might look different in the 10th century Holy Roman Empire than in 17th century Puritan New England. But the customs need to point to the correct ideas. And when cultures start to teach ideas contrary to Scripture... 
culture is becoming a false teacher instead of a support to biblical Christianity. In our world, in our customs, we have last names as a form of identifying ourselves. And so it's entirely right and even necessary in a covenantal Christian home for a woman to take her husband's name. The two become one flesh, one united entity, and from creation on, the man is the head of this entity. And with headship comes not only the authority, but also the responsibility to name things that he has authority over. And this is where the custom comes from. And the move to keep a maiden name or to hyphenate a name is a move which we as Christians, if we're thinking through what customs are teaching, culture is a teacher. If we're thinking that through, we must resist the urge to hyphenate and for women to keep their maiden name. What is that communicating? That is communicating a culture in which women would keep their names is a culture that is teaching that marriage is strictly a sleeping arrangement between two people who are living separate lives. There's two separate entities, each living their own life. They're allowed to have sex at night, I guess, but really that's as base as, and profane as marriage would become. This also proves that patriarchy is inevitable. If a woman won't take her husband's name, she's forced to keep her father's name. Tough one. That's kind of tough, right? You, you can run, but you can't hide. This is just the world God has made. And there seems to be a play on words here, also significant in the naming of woman. There seems to be a play on words with Adam naming the woman. And there's layers here that do suggest that Adam was intentional and he knew what he was doing. He names the woman Isha, which seems related to the word fire, or Ish, because she's taken from him. And this is where I find it so remarkable that even people who don't confess Christ, the image of God just kind of naturally comes out, that a woman is a fire, that a woman is glory, because even non-believers ever since have been singing, you light up my life, or come on baby, light my fire. You can't help but for the image of God to come out. And, and I was quite proud of myself for remembering this. Uh, if you remember 90s country, Mark Chestnut had a song that actually captures all of this naming stuff, and that's, all my old flames have new names, <laughs> Okay. You, you see it all there. It's old flame, women are flames, and they've got new names because their husbands have renamed them. I think Adam knew what he was doing. So the woman is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, so she's the bonest bone, she's the fleshest flesh, she's the fire out of the earth man, she is the glory of the glory. Later, Adam will call his woman Eve, which means mother of all the living. If you're alive today, thank a woman. Women are mothers of all the living. And Adam's future, his connection to the future after he's gone, is going to come through his wife. So in naming her as he does, Adam acknowledges that he has been blessed in getting a woman. This is a gift to him. She shines and she has lit him up. He is truly a new man after receiving her because, frankly, she is glorious. And notice the arguments made in 1 Corinthians 11, and you can turn there. 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is giving instructions about church order, and we find, as is often the case, these instructions are gendered. Okay? Sometimes if this is often happens, that, that the Bible pulls the men apart. They pull the men aside and say, men, you struggle with this. Here's what you need to learn. Women, you come over here. You struggle with this. You need to learn this. So gendered instructions should not at all seem odd to us. In 1 Corinthians 7, or 11, 7 through 10, it says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for the man. And if you're a woman, and that sounds a little bit demeaning to you, you're hearing it wrong. It's saying this, man is the glory of God. And then God crowns that glory with more glory. Woman is the glory of the glory. <laughs> She's the glo this is the pinnacle. It can't get better than this. Woman is completed creation. She's God's final act of creation. She's the completed creation. She's humanity 2.0. She is God's magnum opus. This is as good as it gets. That is woman. She is glorious. In a word, she is the crowning jewel of all creation. So husbands, sons, and fathers, do you see that the women in your life are not just fellow image bearers who look different than you? They are the glory of creation. They're your glory. And this is why, from young on, boys need to be taught to never, ever speak rudely or to hit girls, ever. They're glorious. 
You don't treat a female image bearer like that. And this is why children have to learn manners, but those manners are especially important to exercise when there's ladies around. And this is why we take off our hats, or should, not just in the presence of God, but also when a lady enters the room. This is why we open doors, and we talked about this morning, walk behind a woman and not in front of her. In one farming circle that I work in, I'm frequently with a lady on staff who doesn't really shy away from the fact that she's a feminist. And one time we were at Ottawa for meetings for about a week, and about three days in, she said, I've noticed you always walk behind me. Is that intentional? I said, yeah, it's intentional. Uh, and she actually seemed honored by it instead of offended by it. I've had that go the other way too, where I opened a door for a lady and she glared at me until I walked. That's campus life, I guess, at the U of M. Uh, but uh, th- these are proper, these are fitting forms, opening doors, treating ladies with deference are culturally fitting symbols of what we are saying about how we understand male and female. Because of this dynamic of women being the crowning jewel of creation and the man being the head and the protector, because woman herself is the finishing touch and the beautiful and glorious crowning jewel of creation, women have an innate desire to be desired. Let that sink in for a little bit. Men want, women want to be wanted. When you go to a wedding and you see that every, all the attention's on this beautiful woman who's done her hair nice and she's dressed nice, that's correct. That's the right instinct. She wants to be wanted. Correct. Okay? She is the glory of man. She's made for glory. She's made for beauty. It's correct that, and this can get too elaborate, of course, but it is correct that basically our posture at weddings is on the glory of the woman and not on the man. If a woman feels unloved or unwanted, she instinctively knows that something is wrong, and she will seek atonement on her own. One example that's especially painful, but I think true, and I think illustrates the point. Even though most human behavior, actually, we're not thinking about what we're doing. I'm convinced of that. It's communicating true things, but we don't understand why are we doing this. Think of the epidemic in our culture of girls who cut themselves. We went for ice cream the other night, and there was this beautiful young girl, I don't know, 16, 18 years old, and just covered in cuts. What is that? Because girls are made in the image of God. And that means if they don't feel beautiful, if they don't feel wanted, they're attempting to make blood atonement on their own. What those cuts are saying is, I'm dirty. I'm shameful. I'm unloved. I'm unwanted. Something's wrong with me, and I need to find blood atonement. I need to be covered in blood if I'm going to get rid of this shame and this guilt. That's what she's doing, whether she knows it or not. She knows someone needs to die for this shame. And she'll start cutting herself. And we need to show the way to the true blood atonement. A husband who desires his wife. A Christian humanity who glories in and honors femininity. So as a general rule, men want and women want to be wanted. And the fact that we're designed this way means that women are prone to particular sins. Which is why the Bible instructs men in per, or women in particular in modesty. For example, 1 Timothy 2.9 says, Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Women are automatically and necessarily in the place of sexual power over men. And we'll discuss that next sermon. And this is a good thing that women have sexual power in our universe. This is very good. But frequently, women abuse this power to get an upper hand over men or to destroy him completely. And that's true in our culture, but it's also true in the Bible. Do you think Delilah knew what she was doing? Do you think Delilah understood the exchange that was happening? She sure did. She used her beauty destructively. What about Potiphar's wife? Did she know what she was doing? Yes, she did. Okay? Yes, she did. So even in the Bible, we know of women who know that they have sexual power and they use it very destructively to destroy a man. Because men are made on the image of God, men are on a mission for dominion, and women are the glory to be at their side, making this dominion mandate possible, enjoyable, and meaningful. Because we're incurably made in the image of God, this too shows up in our artistic expressions. So, think again, do another thought experiment. Think of movies or books written by men for men. What are they about? War, mostly. Taming the Wild West. Avenging something. Right? Because that's the stories 
that intrigue the male mind. Dominion. We're made for that. That's not wrong. It's right. It's the right instinct. We're made for dominion. Now, think about books and movies made for women by women. What are they about? Complex relationships, <laughs> resolution, romance. Okay? And I'm saying this is right. We can't escape the image of God. This is right. People are inescapably made in the image of God. Men are oriented towards the mission, and women are oriented towards the man and the family. And this is good. And if we understand why it is this way, we can also understand, again, why some of the instructions in Scripture are gender-specific. Proverbs 12, 4 says that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. So Solomon emphasizes the same theme here, that woman is the finishing touch and a crowning jewel. And when this works well, and a husband and wife both know what they're designed for, everything works gloriously. But when Eve's daughters give in to the same temptation that they are warned about at the curse, everything falls apart. And what's Eve warned about at the curse? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, so gender roles are established at creation, but they're distorted at the fall. Because of creation, men are to lead and women are to uh, beautify and to fill. But what the fall does is mean men become heavy-handed and women become contrary. You're going to desire your contrary to your husband and he's going to rule over you. He's going to be mean about it. He's going to be a jerk. And so when this positive feedback loop is working as it should in creation, a man fulfills his calling by taking dominion. And remember the four things I gave. A man is to build, fight, protect, and lead. And he's building a household economy. He's fighting enemies and sins that threaten the well-being of his family. He's a brick wall protecting his wife and children and church and community from harm. He's leading from the front. And when he is doing this well, his wife feels cherished, loved, safe, wanted, which means she is going to honor that man with her words, with the way she interacts with him, and with her sexual availability to him. And the more of this he gets, the stronger he is to do even better at his job. But I also see this often working in reverse in tough marriage situations. A man is negligent at taking dominion. He's lazy and he never seems to find the time uh, to lead his family in prayer or devotions, even though he's got plenty of time to hang out with the boys. Instead of being a brick wall, he starts using his wife and children as a shield. And is there anything more contemptible than that? I remember as a kid, there was one man in the community who was actively, and everyone knew, engaged in an affair. And it's amazing. He always had his 10-year-old son at his side. It was contemptible because as long as his boy is there, no one's going to confront him on anything. Okay? People do that. Men do that. They use women and children as heat shields, which is one of the most contemptible things you can think of. If you're going to do this, you better face the music, man. When man leads from the rear, in return, his wife now feels vulnerable, unloved, unwanted, which means because she wants those things, she's going to start chasing after him and start nagging and barking at him. And she may not even understand why she's angry or frustrated, especially since she's living in a world that's lying to her and telling her this is all as she ought to be. She may shut down sexually and become unresponsive, either as a means of punishment to her husband or because she's just not emotionally connected. And the more of this he gets, the further he pulls away. The more useless he becomes. And this is the worthless guy I talked about last week that sits at the bar all evening giving advice to young men so he feels like a man somewhere. And I've been around enough to see some pretty difficult marriage situations. And almost none of them actually are complex. It almost always comes down to this feedback loop is working in reverse rather than in forward. Almost always. Okay? It, they're difficult because it's hard to change our behavior, but they're really almost never difficult to diagnose. Almost 100% of the times, this is what's happening. The feedback loop is working in reverse. And we have to find practical ways of turning it forward. And it is the man's responsibility to do this. But the woman is integral to making it work. And since we're talking about the feminine mandate here, I want you ladies to very seriously consider the wisdom of God when it comes to the effect you have on the men in your life. We just saw that a woman who brings shame on her husband is a rottenness in his bones. How do you bring shame? Do you complain about your husband to others? Here's one I see lots of. Do you correct him in front of other people? Don't ever do that. Unless he's giving somebody wrong instructions and they're going to end up at the wrong place, go for it. 
But if you're nitpicking little details of something he said wrong, please stop. You're emasculating him. You're embarrassing him, and he's going to be resentful of you because you're both doing this wrong. Do you compare him to other men who might be making more money than him or might be better at a particular skill? And there's also proverbs that people like to chuckle at because they seem out of sync in our society. But these proverbs, I'm going to say something shocking here, continue to be the word of God in the year 2023. Okay? They continue to be the word of God. For example, Proverbs 27, 15, and 16 says, A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or grasp oil in one's right hand. Okay? And lots of people will go, Ooh, yeah. Ha, ha, ha. That's the word of God. A nagging wife is a dripping roof. Okay? It's, it's just mind-numbing. Proverbs 21, 9 and 19 says, It is better to live in the corner of the housetop than a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. This is God's word. God said that. This isn't something to laugh at. This is true. This is so true that God committed it to print. It is this way. And so ladies, if you want a strong man who lives up to his calling, honor him. If you want an underperforming, defeated, discouraged man, then chase after him with your many words and your many corrections. And women must find other, uh, or they often do find, other ways of ineffectively communicating to their husbands. Right? And so, it, you know, conversation might go like this. Yeah, you know, my husband just won't lead, and, and I've corrected him eight times, and we've had eight conversations, and, and I left three books laying around, earmarked to the right page, and we went to a seminar, and someone says, okay, how many conversations? Eight. How many books did you leave laying around? Four. How many seminars? About six. And he's the dumb one? (laughs) Really? He's the dumb one? You keep trying the same thing over and over again and it's not working? Who's the slow one here? Okay? Nagging, chasing isn't going to work because even defeated men know better than to want to be led by a woman. So you've got to be creative at this. Things start looking very different when women take charge and feminine sensibilities inform a whole people as they do in our own soft culture. Safety and caution tend to be prized over courage and dominion. And holiness gets reduced to things, to pietism. I talked last week about first wave feminism and and a lot of people wrongly think that first wave feminism was harmless and it was not harmless. There was the temperance movement. You know, there's the Great Depression, men are losing their farm, there's a lot of drunkenness, true, correct. They saw a real problem, but their answer was to stop things. Rather than teach men responsibility, let's just make alcohol illegal. Uh, And many strong conservative evangelical men pushed strongly against that urge, uh, saying this is not the kind of culture we want to create where we just outlaw everything we don't like. And that impulse stays the same, right? Guns, carbon, (laughs) fossil fuels, right? We still have that same uh, feminine, pietistic attitude in our culture, that we want to make everything safe, we want to make everything tame, and if anything ever has a negative side effect, there has to be a law against it somewhere, okay? Holiness is much more difficult than that. And the Bible describes a world and how this works. So I'm not going to say this is an absolute chapter and verse prohibition against women in civil government. However, in Isaiah 3.12, it speaks as women rulers as being a judgment from God. Read it yourself. Isaiah 3.12. A culture that is led by women and children is a culture that is under God's judgment already. Well, that can't be because Deborah. Well, I would say this. Read the account of Deborah. I'd say Deborah was a godly and intelligent enough woman to know she was part of a joke that God was running on a man who refused to lead. And she even mocks Barak, the man uh, who she was called to lead. So again, this, the, the Bible doesn't give clear instructions for how this ought to work, but I do think we can say that any society that has, let's say, for example, 50% of its cabinet ministers are women, has rottenness in its bones. It's not designed to work that way. Women and children will lead you as a judgment, not a prescription for how to fix things. So moving back to the original theme and the design of creation. In Ephesians 2, or Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the New Testament, and do you hear the echo of Genesis 1 and 2 here? Men are designed to image Christ, and women are designed to image the church. And the one flesh union is to image our union with Christ, and the fruitfulness and expansion that naturally flows out of that one flesh union. And this means that a woman is the church. A woman is the household of God. And Christ delegates real authority to his church when he gives us keys to the kingdom, just like husbands truly delegate uh, authority and responsibility to their wives. Church authority is real authority, and as a result, a woman's authority in her home is real authority. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. So again, the man is oriented to the mission, and the woman is oriented to the relationships. And the place in which this happens most organically is the home. Just as the church prepares herself for the return of her husband, and his steadfast love provides her with both the desire and the tools to fulfill her task, so a man must provide his wife with the tools to complete her task. Okay? And I've seen this work terribly. I, I'm going to give you a $200 budget to feed our family. Well, that's impossible. <laughs> I know of one woman who was given a kilometer allowance on her van. That's not how this is done. Not at all. Give her the tools if you want something good to come in return. We've given a four-job summary of man's calling to build, fight, protect, and lead. And here, I think, once we start talking about a woman and her household, is where we see the core mission of a woman's calling, which is to fill, create, nurture, and beautify. When a godly woman builds her house, we see her taking on all these roles. She fills her house with children and laughter and the smell of fresh bread. She creates a warm and inviting aura, both in her home and all around her presence. A godly woman just has a certain presence around her. She nurtures the lives she has created, as well as many others around her, and she beautifies everything she touches. And this is where a godly woman is at her most glorious. Her ability to transform plain and even profane things into glorious and beautiful objects is tremendous. She transforms something as basic as a paycheck into a house that's livable. Think about that actually for a minute. That's incredible. She can turn money into a household that's worth living in. Remarkable. She also has an innate ability to turn chocolate milk and peanut butter sandwiches into a little army of people to help weed the garden. Equally remarkable. And women frequently get discouraged at the seemingly mundane and important task of doing the same things over and over, especially when the children are little. But it's good to be reminded here that this is glorious. You aren't just making macaroni and cheese for the 20th time. You're making little people with eternal souls who are going to go out into the world. You're not just changing a diaper for the fourth time this morning. You're changing the heart of a little person who is going to live forever. That little guy is going to man his station in the kingdom of God one day. And not to be too graphic, but think of how a woman even multiplies pretty profane biological things into a living, breathing human life. Think of how remarkable that is. A woman can turn inanimate objects into a human being created in the image of God, with the breath of God in it. That is remarkable. And just because you've seen it 100,000 times doesn't make it less remarkable. Think about that. It's glorious. A woman creates life in her body. Remarkable. And this brings us to another inescapable concept. Just like a husband is leading, so a wife is a homemaker. Okay? I'm going to get some audience participation. Raise your hand if you're alive. Close to 100%. Good. (laughs) Where was your first home? In your mother. A mother is a homemaker. Everyone's first home was their mother's own body. This is remarkable. A woman is a homemaker. And you've seen this little thing that when a little girl is is developing her little uterus and all her little eggs are there. So these little girls are even alive in their grandmother in a secondary sense. Okay? Not only does she have a home where she's baking something, she's making a home for the next home. 
It's remarkable how God has done this. It's glorious. And nature teaches us. A woman has hips on which to rest her baby and breasts to feed it. And nature is shouting reality at us. And here we live in our pretend confusion. Okay? Some ideas, it's been said, are so terrible that you need at least three years of postgraduate work to defend them. Okay, that's how ridiculous some ideas are. Nature is shouting at us that men and women are different and we pretend like we don't hear it. And then what Ray read this morning in Titus 2. That older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And these instructions are consistent with everything we've already seen. The older women are to use their knowledge and their wisdom and experience to mentor the younger ladies. And this intergenerational transfer of wisdom is centered on a woman making her home, as Proverbs taught. They are to be oriented to their husbands and children and towards their home. So, does this mean that a woman's place is the home? And I don't think so. The Bible doesn't say a woman's place is the home. It says her priority is her home. Further, there's women who are single or unable to have children, and they will obviously find themselves in other settings where they can bless other people with their femininity, and that is a legitimate calling. There's also seasons of life where a mother is no longer needed at home like she once was. And further, if you were paying close attention, the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 is so trusted by her husband that she's out in the marketplace... Okay, when I see the ships from afar, I think of a woman on her Costco run. That's our modern-day equivalent of bringing goods from, uh, from the shipping merchants from afar. Okay, she buys land. Her husband trusts her enough with the checkbook that she can make real estate decisions. Her hands are busy. Her family is clothed. Her demeanor helps her husband earn respect among the city fathers. And she is looking out for her household, and her children are loyal to her. So we can see in Titus 2 and Proverbs 31... That a woman's place is not in the home, but that the home is her priority. A woman's priority is her home. And she can do many other things on the side, but the one thing she can't do is put her house to the side. You see that? A woman who's making her house can do other things on the side of that. The, the one side hustle that she can't have is her home. Your home is never your side hustle. It's your central focus. If there's time and gifting to do things beyond that, that is fine and lawful and obedient to the Lord provided your house is in order first. And the household economy is the central focus. And when she pursues other ventures, these ventures should be in support of the household economy instead of creating a separate life apart from her husband and her family. And I think this actually has worked well in our home. After uh, our last one went to school, Kanye took a job uh, that brought in extra income to our home with the Holstein branch. It's something that's kind of related to what we do anyway. It's work that's not directly related to our home. It's fitting. There's nothing wrong uh, with having work outside the home. But the priority is the home. And this vocational focus also helps uh, when we see difficult verses like 1 Timothy 2.15 that says, Yet shall be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And this is very obviously not saying that a woman is justified differently than a man, or that there's a way to be justified apart from grace through faith in Christ. But this is the aspect of our salvation which we call sanctification, growing in holiness, the regular Christian walk. And so under normal circumstances, the main area of a woman's vocational calling will be centered around her family, not just in creating children, but also raising them in a godly manner. And this is where most women will be working out their salvation. And the language about continuing in faith, love, holiness, and self-control confirms that we're looking at, just, at sanctification and not just justification. But the fact remains, women, you're saved through childbearing. This is central to your calling as a Christian woman in most cases. And of course, we can't talk about a topic like this without recognizing that it can be a point of pain for many. Many women would love to be married, but in the providence of God that has not come about. Some women would love to have a baby in their arms, but for some reason or another, it's not happening. And this doesn't mean that you can't practice the feminine graces. It just means it's going to happen in a different arena. Perhaps you have nieces and nephews or children in the church who need your special attention and your ladies' touch. Perhaps there's another worn-down mom who would welcome some help in her home, who needs a mentor, who needs some encouragement. Perhaps you can find a, a vocation or a career that suits your skills and interests and shine the light of your feminine glory there. So just because a woman isn't a wife or a mother 
still doesn't make her interchangeable with a man, though. You are still a woman in all that you do. Deuteronomy 22.5, it says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to your God. So clearly, cross-dressing is out. But there's also language here. Uh, the specific language has to do with women carrying weapons. What this is really saying is women in combat is an abomination to the Lord. God hates it. God hates it when men send their daughters and their wives out to do battle. God hates it. It's an abomination. And just this last week, I saw uh, a military official in the White House explaining to the press why abortion was a core service that the military must provide. Why is abortion a core function of the U.S. military? Well, because recruiting is low, and we need all these women signing up for combat. And as though that is not abominable and contemptible enough that we would even allow women to fight our battles, we're paying them to kill their babies so they can do it. Woe to the nation that thinks that way of its mothers and daughters. That's disgusting. It's disgusting. So even if you're not married, ladies, there's still feminine ways to express your femininity. It's important. Styles of masculinity and femininity, clothing and hair, change from culture to culture. We discussed that in Sunday school. But each culture has cues about masculinity and femininity, and those need to be respected. Men and women are not interchangeable, and even in a vocation outside the home, it is fitting for women to find a vocation that is consistent with their unique feminine calling in life. A woman does not elevate herself, but rather disgraces herself when she abandons God's calling on her life and attempts to be a second or even a third-rate man. Women are glorious in their own right. And think about just the absurdity of feminism. You know, two rules of feminism. All men are pigs, and women find more value the more manlike they become. Women are glorious in their own right. Okay? There's glory in femininity. You don't have to be a second or third-rate man. Be a woman. Be feminine. Live your calling. Women, you were made for feminine glory, so embrace it. Delight in it. Yes, it's good to be a man, but you know what? It's also good to be a woman. It's glorious. Delight in it. And you have the unique ability as a force multiplier to return this glory back to the Lord 30, 60, and even 100-fold. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your instructions in your word are not just true, but they are also good and beautiful. Lord, I want to thank you for variety in creation. You have not all made us a bunch of gray, identical robots, but you have put in beauty, variation, individuality. Lord, and most gloriously, you have been pleased to express that uh, in the way man and woman expresses your wishes for your church, that it tells a story about your cosmic plans for your redemption of Christ and the church. Lord, and I pray that when we're confused, when we're struggling to make application of what holiness looks like in this situation, that we would zoom all the way out and see the cosmic picture, that each man in this room would say, how can I be like Christ in this situation? What would Christ do? And that each woman would also see her remarkable, beautiful, feminine glory and ask, how would the church ought to be in this situation? What's my calling, Lord? And I pray that your, your spirit would make application deep in all of our hearts as we want to obey you uh, in all of life, including the way we obey you with our gender. Lord, if we're struggling with this because of how different or how odd it seems, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see again. This isn't just true, it's beautiful. It's glorious. Help us to see the romance and the glory and the beauty and the way you have created us to operate. And then give us the courage and the insight and the wisdom and the creativity to obey you. Thank you for your kindness. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Feel free to stand.
Listen, don't be seated. <laughs> Rather, stand and receive the charge. A woman's glory is her ability to fill and beautify the creation. After God made the man, he saw that it was not good for him to be alone. Man without a woman is like Christ without a church. Nothing already made was up to this high and honorable calling. And so the situation called for a fresh creation from God. God made the man for dominion, and next he makes the woman for the man. Together their task becomes both possible and rewarding. The woman is the glory of the man, which means she is the glory of the glory. She is the crowning jewel, the finishing touch, the magnum opus of creation. Her beauty, her diligence, and her tenderness ideally suit her for her calling to fill, create, nurture, and beautify. As she does this, she gains the love and the trust of her husband, her children, her church, and her community. The glory she has received from on high fills creation such that it redounds back to God many times over. A godly woman is a force multiplier. So women, what is God calling you to this week? Do you need to put your phone down to be more intentional with your little ones? Do you need to drop something else that is a distraction from your central calling? How can you use your glory to equip your husband to excel at his calling? Can you see the glory in the mundane task of sending little eternal people out into the world? Are there places outside your home that could be blessed by your gifts? You were made for fullness and beauty, and this is your glory in Christ. And then the benediction from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abram, calling him Lord. And if you are her children, you do good, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. And go in peace.